The, if it would be helpful, there is a uh, kids class for grades three and under. If so, if you'd like to do that now, you're welcome. Dr. Selly. Greetings again. Our text this morning is Romans 14, 1 through 15, 7. And you see the title there, Don't Quarrel Over Disputable Matters. Quarrel, don't quarrel. What does it mean to quarrel? It seems that Christians today seem to be quarreling a lot with each other, especially on social media like Twitter and, and Facebook. Well, here's a typical definition of quarrel. To quarrel... Uh, a quarrel is a heated argument or disagreement, typically about a trivial issue, between people who are usually on good terms. Can you think of any examples of that happening in the last three years? <laughs> Not one? Okay, you guys are unusual then. Uh, sometimes when Christians quarrel over a disputable matter, they insist that they're right because they're following their conscience. They say, my conscience is clear. What do we make of this? What do we make of that kind of argument? What I'd like to do this morning is hear what God says in Scripture in Romans 14. And all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us. Is this wrong? Am I better? Uh, sorry. I'm a rookie here. All right. Uh, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that's what Romans 14 is going to help us do this morning. Now in this passage, Paul's addressing a particular set of areas in which Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles were quarreling with each other. And in 14 verse 1, he admonishes them not to quarrel over opinions. That word opinions in the text, the ESV says opinions, the NIV says disputable matters. That's where I'm getting the word disputable matter. So this section about disputable matters includes a bunch of exhortations. Uh, so the, the Jewish religious culture at that time highly valued following customs based on the Mosaic law. So most Jewish Christians carried that strictness those customs, into their new Christian faith. For example, you see in verses 14 and 20 a distinction between unclean and clean. What was that? that? That's reflecting a Jewish historical cultural context. Gentiles didn't share that cultural background. So Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome were quarreling over whether Christians must observe three particular ascetic customs based on the Mosaic Law, and that's Food, holy days, and wine. I have them here in a chart here. So the first issue is food. It's in verses 2 and 21. The, the strong, that's what Paul calls them in verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1. The strong can eat all kinds of food, and the weak eat only vegetables. Again, this is with reference to Jewish customs. So the weak here are mostly the Jewish Christians. Then for holy days, the strong made no distinction among days. The weak valued some days more than others. And then the third issue is wine, verse 21, also verse 17. The strong could drink it, the, the, the weak would abstain. Those are the three issues with reference to the debate about Jewish customs in Rome when Paul is writing this letter. The problem was not merely that Christians in the same church held different views regarding these three disputable matters. The problem was that some in the church progressed from holding a permissible view to holding a permissible view in a sinful way. And they were in danger of holding that view in a heretical way. So here's a large chart that explains that difference. I shared this chart in the last session, so I won't read through it again. But the gist is uh, there's, a, there's a, 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 a realm in which Christians can agree in a way that honors the Lord on these matters. But then you can go a step further and be guilty of either arrogance or judgmentalism. You can hold a permissible view in a sinful way. And then you can go a step further and be guilty of, of heresy, whether idolatry or legalism. 
So that's what Paul is concerned of, is to avoid the sinful attitude and the heretical views. So Paul's exhorting not primarily that the weak change their view to the strong view. He nowhere exhorts that directly in this passage. What he's doing is saying, love each other in your differences as you hold these permissible differing views. Value loving each other more than agreeing on everything. That's, that's what he's, he's saying. He's not saying eliminate differences, love each other. Glorify God by loving others who differ. And these, these three issues uh, do not exactly parallel any modern day issues exactly, but the principles at play do carry over. So here's, here's how we're going to look at this passage. I believe there are four sections. So it's, it's Romans 14, 1 through 15, 13. That's the section. We read through 15, 7. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on 15, 8 through 13. And there are four sections here. So we'll look at, look at them under four headings. First is welcome one another. Second, strong Christians don't cause your brother or sister to stumble. Third, strong Christian, build up your brother or sister. And finally, welcome one another to glorify God. And we'll start with this first one, verses four, chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Welcome one another. Now, as we work through the text, we're just going to go sentence by sentence through this passage. I'm going to display part of my phrase diagram on the screen bit by bit as we work through it. You may have never seen a phrase diagram. A phrase diagram is some, it's, it's a way to display the text where you indent clauses and phrases to show how they relate to each other. So imagine the English sentence, um, I have to leave right after the service ends because I have a plane to catch. I have to leave would be the main idea and then the because I have a plane to catch would be the subordinate idea that gives the reason for the main idea. So I would, I would indent the because line and show that's the reason for the I have to leave early line. You understanding what I'm saying? You'll see it more when I display it. And what I'm going to show you is, is color-coded in all kinds of ways, and that might distract you. Just forget about the colors. That's, that's another thing. Uh, but just the indentation, I'll explain it as we go. So all that to say is, all right, you're going to be overwhelmed for a second. Let's look at it line by line and I'll explain it. This is chapter 14, and we're going to work through verses 1 to 12 to show the main idea is right here in the first line, welcome him. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. That's the main idea of verses 1 to 12, welcome one another. So everything he says that follows unpacks this. And this exhortation is really unpacking the previous sentence at the end of chapter 13. Uh, but we won't, won't trace the argument to that degree right now. So as for one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Um, what does that mean, to, to welcome a person? Well, the, the, the word it's translating, the Greek word, just means to receive into your home or your circle of acquaintances. It's, it's to warmly embrace someone and fellowship with him. It's the opposite of excluding someone and canceling someone. Welcome him. Don't put him on the outs. Welcome him. And this phrase, weak in faith, it's important to understand this right up front. To be weak in faith is to have a weak conscience on a particular issue. That is, it's to hold a conviction that is theologically incorrect, but not heretical. So it's not, it's not the most accurate view. Like if you think it's always wrong, to eat meat, that's not an accurate view. But it's possible to have that conviction and still be an, a Christian who glorifies the Lord. It's not a heretical view, just wrong. Uh, and so to be weak in faith in this passage means that your conscience is not correct on that issue. Uh, now, the, you, do you see the word conscience anywhere in this passage? We just read the whole thing. It's not there. So why, what is my authority my basis for saying this is about the conscience. The reason is the parallel passage, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, mentions the conscience more densely than any other passage in the New Testament. Uh, so conceptually, the conscience is all over this passage, even if the word is not. Uh, now, faith, weak in faith. Faith here does not refer to saving faith in Christ. It refers to the confidence that you have in your conscience to do a particular activity, like 
eating meat. Look at the next line. One person believes he may eat meat. He has faith to eat meat. So weak in faith means you don't believe you can do that. that that's, that's the point uh, of saying weak in faith. It means your conscience lacks sufficient confidence, faith, to do a particular act without self-judgment, even if that act is not actually a sin. If you did it, it would be a sin for you. And Paul says, as for one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions, not to quarrel over disputable matters. In short, don't quarrel about disputable matters. I think that's the title I gave to the sermon. Don't quarrel over disputable matters. Yep, there it is. That's what it, where it's coming from, not to quarrel over opinions. So what counts as a disputable matter? Well, the best way to answer that question is to carefully consider the three disputable matters that Paul addresses in this passage. So let's keep following the argument here. Uh, verse 2 is specifying issue 1. It's the, the people in verse 1. So as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So who are we talking about? Well, there are two different kinds of people. One person believes he may eat anything. That's a person with a strong conscience on this issue. While the weak person eats only vegetables. Okay, so now we know weak in faith, weak person. Uh, the weak person does not have faith to eat meat. That's why he eats only vegetables. This is the, the, the first issue here. And again, this is not parallel to modern day Christians who are vegetarians. Uh, usually that's for health reasons or something like that. Here... The issue is these believers were divided about whether to continue following Jewish traditions about food laws. So the Mosaic law, does it allow God's people to eat meat? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. But sometimes Jews who lived in pagan cultures refused to eat meat, either to avoid the possibility of eating unclean food or to avoid association with paganism. Think of the story of Daniel when he's exiled into Babylon. He refuses to eat the king's meat. Okay, that's verse 2. Now, verse Three, verses 3 and 4, the rest of the screen here, is an inference of verse 2. So because verse 2 is true, because one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables, therefore, here's what follows. That's the, that's the logic here. It's an inference, and, and Paul's going to exhort in verse 3. Here's the exhortation. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Despise the... You could say, look down on or disdain the weak. And then let not the one who abstains, that's the weak person, let not the weak person pass judgment on or condemn the one who eats, the strong. And then he gives two reasons to support that exhortation. The first reason is, for God has welcomed him, or God has accepted both the strong and weak brother or sister. And if God's accepted him, then you should too. That's the first reason he gives. What right do you have to reject someone whom God has welcomed? Second reason, verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So here's, the, here's in my words, I'll summarize the second reason. Each brother or sister serves the Lord and gives account solely to that master. So you have no right to pass judgment on one of the Lord's servants. You're just a slave of a master. And the fellow slaves are not accountable to you. They're accountable to the master. God will see to it that believers will persevere to the end. Okay, let's keep tracking the argument. That's verses 1 to 4. Verse 5 further explains verse 1. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. I'll, I'll tell you one little color-coding thing here. So the, the green is the strong, and the purple is the weak. So that's what I'm carrying over here. The weak uh, view is you esteem one day as better than another, the strong view, esteem all days alike. So this is the second of the three issues that distinguish the weak and the strong. The one who's weak in faith esteems one day as 
more sacred or more holy or more important than another, but the one who's strong in faith esteems all days alike. Again, this is not parallel to modern-day Sabbatarian debates. Uh, the issue here is that the Christians were divided about whether to continue observing Jewish traditions about the Sabbath and other ceremonial days or religious holidays. And then Paul draws an inference from these first two lines. Because that's the case, therefore, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, each person should maintain a personal conviction about such a matter. And this doesn't mean that you're always right about whatever your conscience says, but it means that you must not sin against your conscience. And then verse 6 explains that line, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What do you mean by that, Paul? Here's what he means. The one who observes the day, okay, so that's the weak view. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, that's the strong view, eats in honor of the Lord because he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, that's the, the weak view. Wait, yeah, weak view. The one, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So is it okay for Christians to disagree about disputable matters? Yeah, yeah. Uh, why? Because both the weak in faith and the strong in faith are maintaining their convictions for what purpose? It's to honor the Lord. To glorify the Lord. They're giving thanks to God as they do that. So what's motivating you to hold a particular conviction regarding a disputable matter? So how and why you hold a conviction on a disputable matter is more important than what conviction than what conviction you hold. So here a couple here I'll give you two helpful diagnostic questions to ask yourself regarding whether you're free to do a particular activity. Number one, can I glorify God by doing this activity? If you can't, then you shouldn't do it. And number two, can I give thanks to God for this activity? And if you can't give thanks to God for a particular activity, you shouldn't do it. Now, Paul continues to support what he says in verse 6 with some theology. So this is verses 7, 8, and 9. Here's what he says. For none of us lives to himself. So that for is explaining verse 6. For, here, let me explain. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. Then he explains that sentence. For, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. And then he infers, so then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And then he explains that line. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So just briefly, here's what he's saying. Verse 7, the first, the first sentence here, he's saying none of us lives or dies solely for himself. Your life is not your own. Let me explain that. Verse 7. Excuse me, uh, verse 8, uh, the first line here. Uh, he, he says, the Lord sovereignly ordains our circumstances, and we aim to honor the Lord, whether in our life or our death. And then he draws an inference from that after this sentence. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. We belong to the Lord, whether we live or die. And then he explains that by saying, well, in verse 9, Christ died and came back to life in order that he would be Lord both of the dead and the living. So all of that is to support what he says in verse 6. He's just supporting it. So that's verses 7 to 9. And then he continues, verses 10 to 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? So this first, this, uh, these two sentences, these questions, are an inference of verses 6 to 9. Because those are true, therefore... Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? You see how I have the, the color coding again? Uh, just to remind you, the purple and the green, the, the green I'm saying is the, the strong and the weak is purple. So here, you with the weak view, why are you passing judgment on the stronger brother? And, and you, it's, it's like imagine talking to the guys and they're like cheering. 
You. Why you pass judgment on him? And they're like, yeah. Well, what about you? And you? Why do you despise your brother? <laughs> He's, everyone's indicted here. Uh, the strong and the weak. Don't pass judgment. Don't despise. You shouldn't do that. And then he says, why? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each one of us is going to give an account of himself before the judgment seat of God. As Isaiah 45, 23 attests, it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Therefore, here's the inference of verse 11, because that's true. We don't need to spend our short lives judging other people. We'll each give an account of himself to God. We should mind our own conscience and remember that God will judge each of us. Now, all of that is unpacking this first exhortation, welcome one another. That's, that's his main argument in verses 1 to 12, welcome one another. And then he continues in the second section, verses 13 to 23, which I've summarized this way. Strong Christians. So in this passage, he's not talking weak, strong, weak, strong, like he did in the first section. Here, he just directly addresses only the strong Christians. Strong Christians, don't cause your brother or sister to stumble. That's the main idea of verses 13 to 23. Now, uh, I'll work through the text in just a second, but first I want to make a few preliminary comments about this passage. This passage, verses 13 to 23, uses several terms or phrases synonymously. So if you look down at your Bible in verse 13, see the, the phrase, put a stumbling block, stumbling block, or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 15 says destroy. Verse 20 says destroy, it's a different Greek word than verse 15. Verse 20 also says make another stumble, the same as in verse 13. And verse 21, do anything that causes your brother to stumble. That's the verb form of the noun form in verses 13 and 20. So these are all similar ideas, like synonyms. So elsewhere in the Bible, these kind of words of stumbling and destruction refer to eternal destruction. And I'll read the whole list for you here, but it's all over in Romans. It's also in Matthew, Luke, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Peter. This, this, these words commonly refer to eternal destruction. So I think that Paul's concern in this passage is not merely that you can exercise your freedom in a way that irritates or annoys or offends a weaker brother or sister. It's something more than that. If, if a brother or sister simply doesn't prefer your freedoms, then that's a problem they have to deal with. But if the way you practice your freedom leads your brother or sister to sin against his or her conscience, that's when it becomes your problem. Christ gave up his life for that brother or sister, verse 15. Are you willing to give up your freedom if, if that would help your fellow brother or sister avoid sinning against her, his or her conscience and possibly apostatize? The ultimate spiritual harm is what this passage is talking about when it says uh, a stumbling block or hindrance in verse 13. So how might the way you use your freedom, to how, might, how might you spiritually harm a professing believer? And Paul doesn't say specifically how. My favorite commentator on, on Romans is a New Testament scholar named Doug Moo. And he has a commentary where he suggests two main possibilities. I have them on the screen here. I think this is good. So this is a direct quote of Doug Moo. He says, our engaging in an activity that another believer thinks to be wrong may encourage that other believer to do it as well. So then they would be sinning because they're not acting from faith. We must be particularly careful about vaunting our liberty when the weak believer is in a minority, the peer pressure of most of the other Christians around him or her engaging in a particular action may be difficult to withstand. And then second, a second possibility is an ostentatious flaunting of liberty on a particular issue, particular matter, may so deeply offend someone that he or she may turn from the faith altogether. So before I work through the passage, I thought it would help if I just illustrated this quickly. I chose three illustrations because 
I don't think they will be controversial here. I might be wrong. Number one, drinking root beer. I won't ask her to raise a hand, but just imagine that somebody in their conscience thinks it's sinful to drink root beer. I don't know, maybe because it's a soft drink and it's bad for you, or has the word beer in it and you think beer is wrong, or whatever. For whatever wrong reasons you have, you think it's sinful to drink root beer. That's your conviction. That's the theologically incorrect view, in case you didn't know. <laughs> All right. Um, if that's the case, and I know about this, and I host a fellowship group in my home, and you come, and I get out the root beers, and I pass them out, and I see you, and I say, come on, man, just take a sip. It's so good. Look, we're all Christians. We would do it. Just, just try it. Would that be a loving thing to do to that kind of person? No, that's the kind of thing Paul's talking about here of you're not loving your brother or sister when you're aware of that strong conviction and yet you, you try to get them to go against their conscience. It'd be much better in a more neutral setting to say, hey, let's talk about this. Can you ex help me better understand why you hold that conviction? Um, uh, here's, here's what I think scripture teaches. And you can talk about it. But the, the place for that conversation is not when everyone's drinking root beer and you're trying to you know, get them to come along. Here's, here's illustration number two, eating bacon. Mm. Here's, here's the theologically correct view. Bacon is resurrection food. <laughs> we can eat bacon to the glory of God because Jesus died and rose from the dead, and he fulfilled the Mosaic law code. You can eat bacon at breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks. It's good for every meal. It's a great food. No, no, you don't want to do it for every meal. But I'm just saying you can. It's one of those versatile foods that fits every meal. It's, it's a fantastic food. Now, imagine that for whatever reason, a Christian is convinced in his or her conscience that it's sinful to eat bacon. And you know this. <laughs> well, the, the mature view would be, yeah, more for us. Uh, but you could really spiritually harm a person by pushing peer pressure on them in a set setting to eat bacon when they think it's sinful. <laughs> One more illustration. That's the second. Using modern English translations. That is not the King James Version. I didn't ask the pastors if this was an issue here. Okay, it's not. Good. Um, if it was, I'd keep going. Um, so <laughs> uh, some people, uh, mostly in America, and then some people with a few exported from America think that the only accurate, faithful translation of the Bible into English is the King James Version. Now I, I grew up reading the King James Version. It was the first Bible I read through at age 13 or 14, I forget. But it was the King James Version. I memorized many books of the Bible in the King James Version. I still can think in King James. I can, I can speak King James. Uh, sometimes when I quote a passage, it comes out King James. I like King James. Uh, I'm not, not the actual king. I like the <laughs> translation. Uh, I think it's, it's a historic translation. It's beautiful. Uh, it helps you understand other literature really well. It's just, I'm pro King James Version, okay? But what I'm against is the view that that's the only accurate translation of God's word into English. That's just the, the theologically incorrect view to hold. Um, I don't need to get into all that now, um, but if you want to ask your pastors about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just imagine that one of you in here is King James only. I've been reading the ESV for this service today. And earlier I said the ESV says quarrel over um, no, no, no. Uh, what does the ESV say? Uh, quarrel over opinions. And I said the NIV says disputable matters. So I quoted the NIV and the ESV. So that's two modern translations I've quoted today. And you might be thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm praying for you, Brother Andy. Um, we're trying to understand the Bible, but we're not even hearing the Word of God this morning. We're hearing some interpretation of the Word of God. Some people really think that's the case. Now, would the right move for me to be, well, that's your conviction, and since you're a fellow Christian, I'm going to defer to you 
and I'm going to use just the King James Version. Is that, is that what we should do? See, at some point, a church has to decide, here's what we believe is right. We can't just go to the weakest common denominator for every issue, or else we'll hardly be doing anything. Someone somewhere will be offended. So it's better to teach what we think is true. Now, in a more one-on-one context, if I know that's your view, I'm not going to poke you in the eye with a stick over it. I'm, I can adapt. Like, occasionally I've preached for churches that use the King James Version. And when I walk, and when I serve in a context like that, I happily use the King James Version. That's not the time for me to make a big statement about it and, you know, stir up a controversy. There's a way around that, by the way. Sometimes I'll, I'll use my own translation. It's my translation. And they're like, what can you say to that? Uh, so <laughs> yeah, but that's not, that's unusual. So those are three illustrations of just il- uh, showing how, how to navigate these waters interpersonally and just showing that a church has to take a, a stance on these as, well, here's what we're going to do. We have to choose to do something or not do something. Uh, but just know interpersonally you need wisdom in how to live this out with your brothers and sisters. All right, that's enough preliminary. It's time to read through this passage. Start in verse 12. No, no, I have verse 12 on here because that's getting us a running head start. Verse 12 says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, so verse 13 is our first sentence to look at. That's an inference of, uh, or an exhortation, an inference of what came before. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, contrast, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So the exhortation here in, in verse 13 is stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, determine that you will never place before your brother or sister a stumbling block, an obstacle, or a hindrance, a trap. In other words, to quote the New Living Translation, live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. Now, in verse 14, I put parentheses around it. I can't remember. Did I add those, or are those in the ESV? Does the ESV put parentheses around verse 14? No. Okay. I added the parentheses. Um, The original manuscripts don't even have punctuation in them, so it's okay to do that. Uh, The reason I added parentheses is that I think verse 14 is a parenthetical statement that qualifies verse 13. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. So this sounds like he's saying nothing is inherently unclean, but it is unclean if you think it is. Matthew 7, 19 comes to mind. 1 Timothy 4, 4. Here's how I paraphrase this. If your conscience wrongly informs you that it's wrong to eat bacon, then it's sinful for you to eat bacon. Even if it's not inherently sinful to eat bacon. All right? Then verse 15, the the first part of it at least, gives a reason for, a reason for uh, verse 13b. All right? For... If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. You're not loving your brother or sister if you're grieving them by what you eat. And then the next sentence is an inference, an inference of that previous sentence in verse 15. Since that's the case, therefore, by what you eat, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died, merely so that you can eat what you prefer. That's the exhortation. And then in the next section, verses 16 and following, he starts with an inference. So verse 16 is an exhortation that's an inference of verses 13 to 15. Because verses 13 to 15 are true, therefore, don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So what you regard as good is your freedom to eat meat, your freedom to treat every day alike. That must not be spoken of as evil by those with a weak conscience. Why is that the case? Verse 17, for, so here's the reason for verse 16, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What characterizes God's kingdom is not primarily what we eat and drink. It's 
righteousness, excuse me, not the drinking part. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So those with a strong conscience on a particular matter should not overvalue exercising their freedom. And then, verse 18, Paul explains that. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So you, if you obey the exhortations in verses 13 and 15 and 16, then, number one, you please God. That's ultimately what matters. And number two, this is another benefit, you can receive human approval and thus avoid dissension in the church. And now, in this next bit, verses 19 and the first part of 20, the next two sentences, this is an inference of verses 17 and 18. Because verses 17 and 18 are true, therefore, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. So positively, he's exhorting, hey, let's pursue what promotes peace. Let's pursue what builds one another up. Negatively, verse 20, don't destroy God's work in the church over what you eat. Now, why, is that, why does he say that? He supports that in what follows. Well, uh, he says, everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. And he's still supporting this reasoning in verse 21. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So he's saying, all foods are clean, but that doesn't mean you're free to eat or drink anything anytime or anywhere. It's better not to eat or drink at all or do anything else if that would destroy your brother or sister. And then he adds something here in the middle of verse 21. Drink wine. That's the first time we've seen that. Where would that come from? So this is the third issue. Drinking wine is the third of the three issues that distinguishes the, the weak and the strong. And here he's saying the one who's weak in faith believes that it's good not to drink wine. The one who is strong in faith believes that it's not necessarily sinful to drink wine. Again, this issue is not exactly parallel to modern debates about whether we may drink alcoholic beverages. Here's the issue. The Roman Christians, whom Paul is addressing, were divided about whether to continue observing Jewish traditions about drinking. The Mosaic Law, does it allow people to drink wine? Yes, it does. But sometimes Jews who lived in pagan cultures refused to drink wine and avoid ritual contamination. Again, see the story of Daniel in Daniel chapter 1. And what follows, verses 22 and 23, Paul clarifies, verses 19 to 21. So he's exhorting him. He says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. There's the exhortation. Blessed, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what, what he approves. But, there's the contrast, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Why? Because the eating is not from faith. So here's the reason for that first sentence in verse 23. For, that's the reason, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So let's, let's unpack verses 22 and 23 for a moment here. He's saying, maintain your convictions about disputable matters, but you don't need to broadcast those convictions. If you have freedom, don't flaunt it. If you're strict, don't expect others to be strict like you. So you, you shouldn't sin against your conscience regarding disputable matters for two reasons. One is that you're blessed or happy if you live according to your conscience. So uh, just as God's gift of touch and pain guard you from physical harm, like if you brush up against a hot stove, God designed your body to save you that physical harm by by immediately recoiling your hands, your conscience continually guards you from spiritual harm. Sin steals your joy. When you live according to your conscience, you're blessed, you're happy. That's one reason. Uh, the second is that you are condemned if you sin against your conscience because you're not acting from faith. You feel judged by yourself and you can't make you yourself stop judging yourself. You can't turn off the judgy voice because you're not living according to your conscience. And that's, that problem is a proverbial truth that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If 
here's what the NLT says. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. Even if it's drinking root beer or eating bacon. You've got to live according to your conscience. So this is the main idea of that section, verses 13 to 23. Strong Christians, do not cause your brother or sister to stumble. And then Paul moves into chapter 15. Now, I need to just rant for about 30 seconds here as a professor. Chapters in the Bible go back to about the year 1200, 1200s. Bible verses didn't exist until about 1550. So the chapter break, sometimes chapter breaks are good and helpful. The chapter break here in Romans 15.1 is in my top 10 worst of all time chapter divisions. It breaks up the literary unit of 14.1 to 15.13. So that some people, they get to 15.1 and they go, okay, new topic, new chapter. Ugh, I wish we could just delete that chapter. Reference, not the chapter. Re delete the, the break, the break. I love the chapter. Okay. So the next section is verses 1 to 6, and I summarize it this way. Again, he's addressing strong Christians directly. Strong Christians, build up your brother or sister. Now let's see how he argues. Verse 1. Here he's summarizing what Paul exhorts the strong in chapter 14. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So he's saying we who are strong in the faith have to bear with the failings of the weak. We who have a strong conscience must patiently endure the weaknesses of those with a weak conscience. We must not please ourselves. And then he draws an inference from that. Because that's the case. Therefore, verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For his good to build him up. Let's pause and think about verse 2 for a moment. That sentence is really important. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. We must please our brothers and sisters for their good in order to build them up. Does this mean that you should become a people pleaser? Well, a people pleaser sinfully cares, sinfully cares more about what others think than about what God thinks. But here, the choice is not between pleasing people and pleasing God. Here, it's between unselfishly pleasing fellow Christians by edifying them versus selfishly pleasing yourself while disregarding others. That's the distinction here. So one twisted way to selfishly please yourself while disregarding others is to please others in a way that affirms their sin and is not for their good. Now, that application isn't Paul's main point in the literary context here, but it does logically f flow from the principle. The principle is, is Paul's exhortation in verse 2. So here is his main idea. Christian freedom is not, I always do what I want. That's not Christian freedom. Nor is it, I always do what the other person wants. That's not it either. Here's what Christian freedom is. I do what glorifies God. I do what brings others under the influence of the gospel. I do what builds up the church. That's Christian freedom. And then he gives a reason for that. The next word is four in verse three. Here's the reason. Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Paul's telling us to do what our master did. He's saying, follow your master. Follow your master. Christ didn't please himself. We must follow the example of Christ who put the good of others first. And think about it. What freedoms and privileges did Christ give up to become human and die on the cross? Can you even fathom what Christ gave up? So for us to give up a freedom like eating meat is a trifle. And then the proof, he says, as it's written, the proof is Psalm 69, 9. The New Testament frequently quotes Psalm 69 to interpret Jesus' death. 
So here, Paul's, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. So the, the quotation is, reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So when you argue from the greater to the lesser, it's like this. If I can pick up this pulpit, oh, it's heavier than I thought it would be. All right. If I can pick up this pulpit, then I can pick up the handkerchief that's on the pulpit. You see that argument? So here's how Paul's arguing here. The greater work is Christ suffered insulting reproaches at his crucifixion. That's the greater work. Here's the lesser work. We should be willing to suffer by unselfishly pleasing fellow Christians for their good instead of selfishly pleasing ourselves. That's his argument. That's why he's quoting Psalm 69 in verse 3. And then verse 4 is an aside that explains this quotation. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. He's saying God wrote the Old Testament not directly to us, but for us, specifically for our instruction. And for what purpose? For what purpose? That we might have hope. And how? It's through endurance and through the encouragement that comes from the scriptures. And now he's ready to draw an inference from chapter 14, verse 1, all the way through 15, verse 4. And his inference is verses 5 and 6, and it's a prayer. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, may the God who enables you to endure and who encourages you, so you have endurance and encouragement, uh, may he graciously enable you to live harmoniously with each other. And on what basis do we do this? It's in accord with Christ Jesus. And for what purpose do we do this? The first word of verse 6 is that. Here's the purpose. That together you, both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, together, all you, all y'all, may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the purpose is not merely unity. It's unity for the purpose of glorifying God. Glorifying God, what is that? That's a way of feeling and thinking and acting that makes much of God. It shows that God is supremely great and good, and it demonstrates that God is all-wise and all-satisfying. We most glorify God when He most satisfies us. So that's the main idea of verses 1 to 6. Strong Christians, build up your brother or sister. And now, quickly, we'll look at this last bit, verses 7 to 13. I'm not even going to read all of it. I'm going to focus on verse 7. But I'd summarize this section this way. Welcome one another to glorify God. So the, the, the way I summarize chapter 14, 1 to 12 is welcome one another. So this kind of reprises that, but it explicitly names the purpose, to glorify God. So let me show this to you in verse 7. Therefore, it might be too small for you to see. Therefore, welcome one another. And here he adds something. He adds something. In what manner? As Christ has welcomed you. And then he adds one more thing. For what purpose? For the glory of God. And the rest of this passage emphasizes glorifying God. I won't read it all, but let me just point out some things. Look in verse 9. See, the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And therefore, I will praise you and sing to your name. Rejoice in verse 10. In verse 11, praise the Lord and let all the peoples extol him. And in verse 12, in him the Gentiles will hope. And then he concludes with the prayer, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Spirit you may abound in hope. Welcome one another to glorify God. So this passage gives God's brilliant solution for what we should do instead of quarreling over disputable matters. It really is a brilliant passage. Welcome one another 
You strong Christians, don't cause your brother or sister to stumble. Build up your brother or sister. Welcome one another to glorify God. Now, all that is really easy to say. It's, it's impossible to obey. We need God's help. So I'd like to conclude by asking God for grace to respond to this passage in a way that glorifies him. So let me close by leading us in prayer. Father, we are finite and sinful people, and for a complex of reasons that you know far better than we do, we disagree with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ on all sorts of disputable matters. So we ask, would you please give us grace to welcome those who disagree with us on various disputable issues? Would you please give us grace to not look down on those who are stricter than we are? Would you please give us grace not to be judgmental towards those who exercise more freedom than we do? Would you please give us grace to be fully convinced of our positions in our own consciences? Would you please give us grace to practice our freedoms and restrictions for your glory and to assume that other believers are doing the same? Would you please give us grace to keep disputable matters in perspective because we know that we will all someday stand before your judgment seat? Would you please give us grace to not let our freedom destroy the faith of a professing Christian who is weaker on a particular disputable matter? Would you please give us grace to build each other up in righteousness, peace, and joy? Would you please give us grace not to flaunt our freedom or expect others to be as strict as we are? Would you please give us grace to live according to our conscience and experience your blessing? Would you please give us grace to follow the example of Christ who, who put others first? And finally, would you please give us grace to glorify you by welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us? Father, we are weak and selfish, and we need so much endurance and encouragement to live with our brothers and sisters in this way of peace. You are the God of endurance and encouragement. So please give us grace to live in such harmony with one another and in accord with Christ Jesus that together we may with one voice glorify you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We'll close up. Amen. What an incredible room.